welcome to Mother of Dogs, the podcast for pet lovers who want to live their best life alongside their fur babies. I'm Tina, dog mom to Winnie and Chloe, my two French bulldogs who bring fun and chaos wherever they go. If you want to hear stories from modern pet parents about how they navigate life and business with their furry friend, then you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hi, Evie. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Tina, for having me. Congratulations on the publication of your book, Good Grief, on loving pets here and hereafter. I thought it was incredible. You managed to balance a topic that I would consider heavy, pet loss and love, with humor, lightheartedness, hope, and a sense of relief and peace. You provide stories and countless ways to honor and celebrate pets. I can't wait to hear more about the book and the writing process, but I was hoping we could start with getting to know you a little bit more. Sure. Well, I am someone who's always had a lot of pets. I grew up in Massachusetts outside Boston, and I had been wanting pets of my own. I think since I was born, I went to an elementary school that had a lot of really great classroom pets, and that made me just want pets at home even more. So I was constantly badgering my mom to try to um, convince her to let me get fish or birds or dogs or cats. And my mom... Um, has really bad allergies. So she was always hesitant to get certain pets. And she was also really worried about how sad I'd feel when those pets died. So she put it off for as long as she could, but eventually I wore her down. So then I grew up with a whole menagerie of different animals who were a really big part of my childhood and continue to be a big part of my life now as an adult. Awesome. So you grew up in New England. It's a pretty unique part of the country. My husband and I grew up there also but we've bounced around. Now we're based in Texas. Are you still outside Boston? Yeah, um, I'm in Arlington, right outside Boston. What's kept you in the area? I have strong family ties here, and I feel I was very strongly shaped by growing up in New England. I feel like New Englanders often have a dark sense of humor about things. I regularly, when I visit someplace, like I was visiting friends in Southern California, and I was like, it's so beautiful here. Like, why does anyone live in Massachusetts when it's cold and icy and terrible like half of the year? But I feel like there's something about the darkness that kind of makes people who grew up in this area maybe have a dark sense of humor about how to get through kind of tough times. And I've just always felt very at home here. My husband's also from Massachusetts, so we both have strong roots here. So this is where we are, at least for now. Maybe one day we'll try somewhere else. But And did I read that your grandfather has had a business for, or there was a family business for over 100 years or something like that? Yeah. So actually, it's funny. My um, When I went to grad school um, for to get my MFA in creative writing, my thesis was actually like all about Massachusetts. My grandparents on my mom's side both grew up in Somerville. Um, and I was writing a lot about how the Somerville they grew up in was full of crime and drugs and factories. Like my great grandfather worked in a factory that made sausages and very different from now. Somerville is like super gentrified, you know, very fancy restaurants, very expensive to live. Um, my husband and I tried to buy a house in Somerville and got outbid by a hundred thousand dollars. Um, And I was writing um, this, my thesis was about sort of this contrast of these worlds while my grandfather has had this um, 
it's an insurance agency right in the heart of Somerville in Davis Square for um, his parents started it in 1930. So it's been almost 100 years at this point. Um, but what's funny is that Good Grief actually came about sort of when I needed a break from writing that material. I always like to have more than one writing project going at a time um, because I feel like then when I hit a wall with one thing, I can be like, all right, I'll take a break from this, but I'm still writing and working on something, but it will be something else for a little bit. So in grad school, when I needed a break from doing all this research about like the history of Somerville and the Winter Hill Gang and all the stuff I was writing about, I found I was drawn to writing about pets I'd had. And those essays about those pets always ended with how those pets died, because if you have pets, that's usually what happens is they don't live as long as you do. Um, and one day in my workshop, I brought a few in and shared them with my friends. And, you know, they had been interested in the stuff I've been writing about with my family and Somerville. But then their reaction to the pet stories was just like, so enthusiastic, so interested. They immediately wanted to tell me about their own pets, the things they had done when their pets died. Um, and my friend Laura pointed out that, you know, there's not really one standard of how to grieve an animal. And so she was like, you know, it could be really cool if you added maybe some research to these essays about things people in other cultures or throughout history have done to mourn pets. Cause it's just, you know, um, so varied, you know, with humans, there's usually a standard, like I was raised in an Irish Italian Catholic family. So it's like, you have a wake, you have a funeral, you have this very specific checklist of things you do when a person dies. But with a pet, you can do anything you want or nothing at all. And so I started to do some research and pretty soon I realized that could be a whole book, not just a few essays. So I actually am still writing about the Somerville Insurance Agency stuff as well, but that's been on hold for a while while I've been working on and published Good Grief. Did you feel pressure at all ever to get into the insurance business because of it being in the family? Um, not that much. I mean, it was my summer job every year all through like high school and college and even grad school. I would answer phones. I feel like I have a lot of respect and understanding for people in customer service because I got yelled at so many times by people who were <laughs> upset because they had just gotten in a car accident and, you know, didn't know that they were yelling at like a 14 year old on the phone. Um, so I sometimes felt like maybe the sense of obligation that I should take this business over, but my mom um, has not shown any interest in taking over the insurance agency for my grandmother, uh, grandparents. Um, and so I feel like she sort of broke the the chain already a little bit. My mom's a musician and she is a pianist and went to music school and stuff. So I think that she kind of launched first and I didn't really feel that, but I love the insurance office. And I always used to hang out there and type up stories on my grandfather's typewriter, um, you know, when it was slow in the summer. And it's a place that was very formative. And a lot of what I was writing about, too, is my family is um, very anxious, and we worry a lot about stuff. And I often wonder, you know, being in the insurance industry is, you know, basically professional worrying, right? Like, yeah. you know, <laughs> so true about what things are going to happen or not happen. And so I always wonder, like, did my family get into insurance because we're worriers or did we become worriers because we're in insurance? So that's something else I've been writing about. But it's funny, I, um, I had a professor in grad school who pointed out that every 
writer and artist usually has like one or two themes that show up in all of their work, even if it looks really different on the surface. And I feel like even though the insurance agency book project and Good Grief on the surface look really different, I think both of them grapple with sort of worrying about worst case scenarios and dealing with the fear of like what happens when this really awful thing, like the worst possible thing happens to someone I love. That's so interesting. And so your book is part memoir. So I know you've had a variety of pets you just mentioned as well. So what is your current pet roster? You acknowledge pets are teachers. And do any lessons come up from the pets that you currently have? (laughs) Okay, well, uh, Richie and I have, we call it the... um, the menagerie. We have one dog. His name's Seymour. He's a Chihuahua pit bull mix. So he is this little gray, uh, silver, bluishy gray dog who has Chihuahua ears, but kind of pit bull like muscles. Um, <laughs> from Seymour, I think I've learned a lot about patience. Actually, um, he's a rescue dog. He came from Florida. He has some rescue dog baggage. He can be reactive sometimes with other dogs. Um, And he also was uh, tested positive for heartworm when we first got him. Mm -hmm. So he had to go through this really grueling, painful medical treatment um, when we'd only had him for about six months. And I think from him, I really learned a lot about how to be patient, how to, you know, let an animal tell you what they need, what they want to not force them, you know to be picked up and carried around if they're not feeling good, you know? Um, And with Seymour too, I think I've learned a lot about sort of accepting people and animals for who they are. Um, You know, I had this whole idea when I got a dog that he would be a dog that I could like take to breweries with me and we would go to dog parks in the morning and Seymour's really not that kind of dog. Like I used to bring him to off-leash hours and we stopped going after he was way too aggressive with another puppy and he's just not great and big groups of dogs and he gets really nervous and loud situations. And, you know, I think I learned from Seymour both patience and acceptance for, you know, love the dog you got, not the dog you were imagining you would have. So that's Seymour. Um, and then in addition to Seymour, um, we have two red foot, um, tortoises. So Terrence, um, was actually, He was really my first adult pet. I got him right after I finished my MFA program. And next fall, I will have had him for 10 years. Um, And I rescued him from a woman who was uh, getting rid of him on Craigslist. I guess he used to belong to her daughter. And she went off to high school and didn't really care about having a tortoise anymore. So um, I got Terrence. And then just this past fall, we got a female redfoot whose name is Twyla. So we have Terrence and Twyla. And I think from them, I learn a lot about um, appreciating the little things and kind of moving at your own pace, which maybe sounds like a cliche with tortoises, but, you know, they move slowly, they're methodically. And I just love, you know, when I give them one of their favorite treats, like they both love radicchio. They're very fancy tortoises, like they'll (laughs) they'll eat whatever lettuce, but like their favorite lettuce is like radicchio. And watching them just like methodically crunch their whole way through like a head of lettuce. And this like seems like they're really savoring it. I just it's a nice reminder to not rush through things, especially things you love. 
Um, Because I think it's very human to always be worrying about whatever's next um, and not just appreciate being in the moment. And like, I love watching Terrence eat a strawberry and he gets like red juice all over his face. And he's like, (laughs) that's great. Um, And then we also have um, a small flock of pigeons because my husband, he grew up in Boston and always has had an affinity for what he calls trash birds. Um, So like seagulls, crows, pigeons like birds that are very scrappy and resourceful and live really well in human like urban environments. So anyway, actually when I was looking for um, dogs in fall 2020, before we found Seymour, I saw a listing for a few pigeons that were available at the MSPCA um, (laughs) in our area. And I texted to Richie sort of as a joke. I was like, Oh, do you want to have pigeons? Ha ha. And he was like, maybe and we just bought a house and we suddenly actually had room where we could build a pigeon loft outside and and have them here and so we rescued these two pigeons and then since then we've had um a series of one flew away and then we adopted another and then those two had a baby who then took off and now we have two more so it's like a rotating kind of cast of pigeons but i think with um them I've learned a lot about appreciating an animal that a lot of people overlook. I think a lot of people are really quick to dismiss pigeons as gross, dirty city birds. And I actually think if you spend time observing them, they have really unique personalities. They have really beautiful markings. Um, they're really smart. You know, they recognize me and Richie when we come out with food, um, you know, and I think I've learned to appreciate animals that maybe get dismissed as just pests. Um, And I also think with the pigeons too, especially because, you know, we're trying to train them to be homing pigeons and so they'll fly in in the morning and come back at night, but you have to be a little more um, willing to let go, I guess, and understand that they're sort of still wild in some ways. Pigeons are like a weird in-between of they were domesticated and then they became wild and then they're sort of often kind of feral and, I think learning to appreciate and let go um, more with them than any other um, types of pets in some ways. Um, And our final group of pets is my husband has always been really into having fish tanks. So we have about a dozen African cichlids in a big 60 gallon tank. Um, And honestly, the fish are much more Richie's uh, territory. I'm always worried I'm going to mess up the water or anything (laughs) if I touch it. But I think when the fish, sort of similar to the tortoises they remind me to slow down and you know you can just sit there and watch them swim around for hours and i I read about this a bit in good grief but there are all these studies about how watching fish can actually lower your blood pressure and make you calmer and help you with stress and anxiety and i think that the fish are a really good reminder to just you know take time and enjoy and appreciate what's going on around you that's incredible (laughs) Yeah, that's a lot. So when you go on vacation, how does that work? (laughs) Uh, We're actually planning a big trip this fall. My um, best friend from college lives in Japan and we're going to be gone for two weeks. And so we're figuring out the whole situation. But I think our current plan is Seymour is going to go stay with my parents. Um, He loves my parents so much. They spoil him rotten. So he's going to go live at their house for two weeks. And then 
Um, we have a friend who has a pet sitting business, so we're going to hire him to come over once a day and check on the tortoises, check on the pigeons, check on the fish. We also have a ton of plants, so he's going to check on all the plants too. Nice. So you're a nonfiction writer, Grub Street instructor, freelance editor, manuscript consultant, writing coach, tutor, and senior editorial writer in the communications and public affairs department at Wellesley. It's a lot. You've alluded to this before that you like to work on lots of projects at once, but did you always enjoy writing and did you always know you would be writing professionally? So I've always loved writing. I, um, I loved reading from a really young age and I, um, I think pretty much as soon as I learned how to write, I like was trying to write myself. Um, in my elementary school, I remember you could like write a like a story of your own. And if you illustrated it and like went through it with the teacher and they made sure there were no spelling errors and you wrote it really neatly, they would let you go to the teacher's lounge and laminate the covers and like bind it together with like this special plastic binding. And that was like, I think that was my first like thrill of publishing in like first or second grade. And I've been like chasing that high ever since. Like it was such a great feeling to be like, this story was in my head and now it's in this form that I can share with people and they can read. Um, and I just think like, (laughs) I like writing has always been a way that I process my feelings too. I've kept journals that I write in almost every day since, um, I started it in earnest, I think in like summer 2001, like when I was in middle school and I just, it's how I figure out what I'm thinking, how I'm feeling and how I kind of process the world around me. And so writing has just always been that, tool for me. And, and it's also the way I feel like I communicate best with other people. Um, so, you know, if I ever know I have to have a really hard conversation with a friend or I'm really worried about somebody, I often find I gravitate towards writing like a note, you know, sending a letter in the mail or writing an email, um, you know, because that's how I feel like I am best at expressing myself. So I think I always knew, Um, that I wanted to be a writer and I wanted to write in some capacity professionally. Um, When I was in high school, I was very sure of that. And when I went off to college, I was pretty confident that I was going to be an English major and and with a creative writing thesis. And then actually when I got to college, I got kind of um, sidetracked because I got really interested in Russian. I had to study Russian. um, Well, I didn't, I had to study a language as part of my graduation requirements And I started taking Russian and I fell in love with it. So I actually, I lived in St. Petersburg for a year and I had this brief fling where I was like, oh, maybe I'll be like, I'll get a PhD in Russian lit and be a professor, even though that involves writing too, but like a different kind of writing. Um, Or I was like, maybe I'll like apply to work for the state department, like do all this government stuff or whatever. And uh, my favorite thing though, when I was studying abroad was I was a staff writer for the college student life magazine and I wrote every month sort of these dispatches from being abroad and I realized like I loved writing these short personal essays I really thrived on having these deadlines I had to hit and so I kind of always knew that's probably what I really wanted to do Um, and then when I graduated though from college I graduated in the middle of the recession and I was trying to find a job and the job that I found um, was being an AmeriCorps teaching fellow at a school in Boston. So I actually taught English and writing um, and social studies to fifth and sixth graders for two years. 
and I loved teaching. And my favorite part, though, of teaching was teaching writing and figuring out, you know, even with kids who don't think of themselves as bookish writerly people like I always did, figuring out a writing project that maybe they would be really excited about or helping them figure out, okay, you don't really like reading realistic fiction books, but you think, you know, sci-fi graphic novels are the coolest things in the world, you know, and helping, you know, kids figure out these are the types of books you like to read. These are the types of things you like to write. Um, and so that's what inspired me to go get my MFA was sort of twofold that I wanted to be a better writer myself. And also I wanted to learn how to be a better writing teacher. Um, and then after I finished my MFA, it's just been sort of cobbling together different jobs, teaching a bit, tutoring. I was a nanny for a year. Uh, I worked at a bookstore and um, I did a lot of freelance writing. And one of my freelance writing clients was I would write pieces for the Wellesley College alum magazine, which is where I went to college. And then um, they were looking to hire a full-time person in the communications department. So I applied there. So that's that's how that all came about. But I think I always knew I would write professionally in some way. I just wasn't sure if it was going to be like novels or poems or like a National Geographic staff writer. Like that was my dream for a while, you know, so this is where I am now. Writing is a fairly independent activity for the most part. What is your favorite part of the process? Is it the outlining, researching, writing, editing? That, oh, that's a hard question. Um, I love, I love the excitement around starting a new project and diving into the research. Like I find that like so thrilling and exciting. Um, and I honestly, like if I didn't have deadlines, I would research forever. So like I, so I sold good grief, um, based on the proposal to a publisher because in part I knew that I needed like hard deadlines of an outside person saying like, Hey Evie, you need to turn in this draft by this date. Cause otherwise I could just have researched like pet death rituals and other cultures for the rest of my life. Um, so definitely I love doing the research, especially in early sort of exploratory phases where you're still kind of figuring out what you want to focus on. Um, and then after that, I would say I really love editing and revising. Like I find it really satisfying to then take a draft that I've written and print it out and go through it by hand and read it out loud and mark it up and figure out what's the best word or how can I make this sentence tighter and more meaningful or more impactful. Like I really like that process. I think my least favorite part is when you have like a blank word document and you're like, I don't know what to start with. So I think it's sort of like the beginning and the end I like the most. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you have a consistent writing practice or ritual where you work on your own personal projects outside of your professional commitments? I know you mentioned that you journal. Yeah, I don't have a really strict schedule. Like I know that there are a lot of writers like I remember reading an interview with Toni Morrison and she I think woke up at like 4 a.m. every day and wrote for like three hours before she went to work. Um and a lot of people have really, really regimented schedules like that. And for me, um, I find, especially because my day job, it kind of goes in waves of when it's most busy because I work, you know, at a college often like the fall is really busy because it's like the beginning of the semester. And then the spring is super busy with like commencement and reunion and all those big events that I write stories about. Um, 
So I find sort of it goes in waves where sometimes like the winter is quieter at my day job. So I have more time for my own writing or right now it's the summer. So it's pretty quiet. Um, And so I just try to block off chunks of time to do my own writing in the same way that I would block off, you know, time to go to the doctor or time to have a Zoom call with, you know, somebody I'm interviewing for a story for my day job. Um, and, you know, fit it in when it makes the most sense for me. Um, sometimes that's like a Saturday morning. Sometimes it's like a Tuesday night, like when Richie's at band practice and I'm home writing. Um, and it kind of varies week by week. And so what I always tell myself is that, you know, not every day is a good writing day, but maybe the course of the week I can hit a goal that I want to make. And I feel like once I accepted that, it made me feel a lot less bad when, you know, other people were like, oh, I've wrote a thousand words every single day this week. And, you know, I'm feeling like, well, I didn't write at all on Monday or Tuesday, but then I edited this whole thing I meant to do on Wednesday. That was pretty good. So that's sort of my strategy is to give myself goals for the week and accept that not every day is going to be the best writing day and try to just hit things by the end of the week. How do you balance all of the deadlines, like with the work that you take in? Because I feel like writing is pretty time consuming, like with all of the different processes. So how do you know how long things will take you and how do you manage all of the deadlines? Um. Figuring out how long things will take me has just taken a lot of um, experience, I think, of writing lots of different kinds of things. Um, So I can know, um, like when I'm writing a piece for my day job and it's like a recap of, um, I don't know, an event, like let's say like a, a famous author comes and gives a lecture on campus. I know that a piece like that often doesn't take me as long to write because I don't have to do really any interviews. I just go to the event and then sort of write a recap of it. So I know something like that takes me less time than actually a piece I'm working on right now is a really beloved staff member at the college is retiring. And I ended up interviewing like 15 people about him. And I have like way too many quotes. And this is like taking me forever to sort through who to quote and how to piece it together. And then obviously, like the pieces I write for my um, day job is they're always much shorter. They're like 500 to like absolute max 2000 words. And then obviously a book like good grief is, um, I think it's about 75,000 words was the final count. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the length of a project obviously takes more time as well, but I think all of, all of the things I write, I always try to think about it in smaller pieces because when I was thinking about good grief as a whole book, I sometimes would get absolutely paralyzed and I would think, oh my gosh, I can never write a whole book. Like that's so many words. It's so long. How am I going to mix all this research and weave it in with my personal story and have it flow and have it work together? And it was just, it was really overwhelming at times. But when I started to think about, okay, well, my outline, you know, having an outline for a big project is really crucial in my opinion. I don't often Mm -hmm. outline when I'm writing like a 500 word recap. Um, But for a big project, you know, I was like, okay, I think there's going to be eight chapters and like a prologue and an epilogue. And I started to kind of sketch out what I thought would be in each one. And I I started to think about it like, you know, I've written essays before. I've written some pretty long essays. I'm going to just think about this as writing 10 essays. Like I can write 10 essays. I've never written a book before, but I've definitely written 10 essays before. So 
I think that's a big part of writing too, is figuring out sort of different strategies for what the project is. Um, and I had a professor in grad school who she said that you only know how to write the book that you just finished writing. And I feel like that often is so true. Like every writing piece is so different and every project is so different um, based on the research or what the topic is that the same strategy, there really isn't a one size fits all thing that works for writing. So I think um, I spend actually a lot of time, not necessarily like brainstorm writing, but I spend a lot of time just thinking before I often start writing. And um, for a while, I would get really mad at myself and think that I was procrastinating. And I'd be like, you keep taking the dog for these long walks and you're not writing. And then I started to realize, like, actually, on those long walks, I was spending a lot of time thinking about the stuff I wanted to write. And then often I felt like my head was clear when I came back and I sat down and I could just like dive right in and do it after I had spent all that time kind of sifting through it. So I think that's another thing too, is not being hard on yourself. If your process maybe looks like you're not writing a lot right away, but actually you're doing other stuff that's part of the writing process. Yeah. That's how I feel when I take a shower. <laughs> I feel yeah. like I get my best ideas in the shower and then all of a sudden they're coming to me and I'm trying to remember them as I'm trying to dry myself off and figure it out. Oh, definitely. Showers are great. Walking dogs is great. Um, like going on a bike ride or even like a long drive. Like I, you know, I've had times where I've worked out like a whole outline for a project because I was like stuck in traffic, you know? So I think that, um, those are all really great times. And I, um, I love nonfiction too, because there's so much research and reading involved with it that sometimes if you're having a hard time putting words on paper one day, you can kind of pause and do more reading and writing, like reading for your writing. And then, you know, um, if you're having a day where you're, you know, really on fire, you don't have to read, you can just write. And so my friend, Mary Mann, who is another nonfiction writer, she said, like a good, uh, you can have a bad writing day, but a good reading day or a, you know, a bad reading day and a good writing day. So that's sort of something I like as well, balancing multiple things at once. Yeah, definitely. So how do you describe your book to a random person? I say it is a work of narrative nonfiction that blends my personal stories with a lot of reporting and research throughout history and contemporary sources. And it's all about the things that people do to mourn and celebrate their animals' lives when their animals have passed away. That's great. I read an interview you did that this book was really a 10-year project. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah. So I mentioned that I first started writing these like short essays about pets I'd had and how they died in grad school, and that was fall 2012. And so I started really first really writing all the personal stories. So in the book, you know, each chapter starts with sort of a personal element and then moves into research. So the first halves of all the chapters are some of the first things I wrote. Um, but then I was working on that other, the insurance agency stuff. So that really took my main focus all through grad school. And then I finished grad school in 2014 and I spent about nine, 10 months where I was sort of thinking about like, what do I want to do next? I was starting to revise my thesis, but wasn't really sure what to do. And then I was like, you know what, let me try working on the pet stuff for a bit. And so then spring 2015, it was when I really feel like I started to in earnest do a lot of research and commit to the idea of like, maybe this is going to 
be my main focus. Your schedule is so regimented when you're a teacher. And I had time in the summer and time in like winter and spring vacations and stuff to write. But it was, I had a hard time sort of doing these writing sprints and then not writing at all for several months. I have some friends who do that really well, but it just was not working for me. And so eventually then I quit teaching full time and started teaching at like Grub Street, which is a creative writing center. So I was teaching more sort of at nights or on weekends and had bigger chunks of time where I could just focus on writing. And that was when I really started to work on putting together the proposal and trying to get a literary agent and then selling the proposal to a publisher. Um, so I sold, I, oh, I signed with my agent in 2018. I sold the book to, um, I actually first sold it to HMH Books and Media, which was Houghton Mifflin's kind of commercial division in fall 29, no, sorry, January, 2019. Um, and then I turned in the first full draft in January 2020. Um, and then over the course of COVID, my pub date got bumped um, from 2021 to 2022, which I actually, in retrospect, was very grateful for because it gave me more time to edit. I got to do some more interviews. I got to write a bit about the impact of um, having pets during COVID. Um and then also during that time, HarperCollins bought HMH. Um, so then my mm -hmm. book ended up coming out with HarperCollins instead of HMH finally. So there was a lot that happened. So yeah. between the first few Pratt personal essays in fall 2012, all the way to the book coming out in August 2022, it was just about 10 years. Wow. So how long did it take to get the book proposal together? And then the literary agent, it could be a discouraging process for some people. And do you feel like all of your background and writing that helped you in the process? Yeah, well, it's interesting because I feel like my MFA program and a lot of MFA programs often really focus on the craft of writing, but they don't focus as much on the business part of writing. So mm. I feel like I graduated in spring 2014 and I knew how to write really well, but I didn't know how to sell that writing. Um, mm. And so I feel like I spent kind of a year uh or two just trying to figure that out and understand it and there's a book now actually that i recommend to everybody um, that came out in 2020 so i i read it when i was already sort of in the process but i thought it was incredibly helpful and it's called before and after the book deal by courtney mom m-a-u-m and it just like totally demystifies the whole publishing process. And she breaks down sort of like the traditional publishing route, academic presses, self-publishing books, like all the different ways um, you can get a book out into the world. And that's so helpful. But basically, I spent a lot of time reaching out to people I knew from grad school or even just other writers who I kind of like had friends of friends who knew and asking them for advice on, you know, how do you think I should go about this? Like, how do like, are there agents who specialize in books about animals? Like, where should I be looking? And in looking for an agent, um, someone gave me really great advice that often the best thing you can do is look at books that you feel like are comp titles, like comparative titles to your book that you want to write and flip to the acknowledgements and look to see who their um, the author's agent is. Because unless usually there's like some weird drama, the author will thank their agent and the acknowledgements. So I went through and I looked at books like um, Stiff by Mary Roach is one mm -hmm. of my favorite books. She writes mm -hmm. about what happens when you donate your body to science. And so I kind of pitched my book in a way as like stiff, but about pet bodies instead of human bodies. So 
you know, I looked at her acknowledgements and I tried querying her agent and he was not interested. Um, and then, you know, I looked at other like um, books that felt similar, like Caitlin Doty, who writes a lot about death and death rituals. I tried to query her agent, you know, I kind of, that was how I approached things. Um, and what was hard was a lot of the feedback I got was either that people were like, I'm not a pet person. I don't really understand why people have pets in general. And I was like, that's fine. I don't want you as my agent because I feel like you don't get this book. And then a lot of people um, said, if people love animals so much, why would they ever want to read a book about animals dying? And my feeling over and over that I kept saying was people who have pets, I think, are often more in touch with death than people who don't because they have to experience it more regularly. You love these beings, but they only live for like 10 to 15 years for dogs and cats. Um, you know, I know people who have like rats and guinea pigs who go through a major loss every like two to four years, you know, it's, it's really hard, but it's something that everyone experiences, but I always am shocked that people don't talk about it as much. So finally, um, I ended up querying an agent who represents a friend of mine, which I do think helped because my name kind of rose to her attention because my friend said, Hey, look out for my friend Evie. She's going to query you. And my agent is someone who she, she represents a lot of, um, kind of pop science, nonfiction, and a lot of nature books. And she just immediately got it. And she grew up with lots of pets and immediately told me all these stories about how her own pets had died in all these horrific ways. And she sent me um, an article about how Barbara Streisand had just cloned her dogs. And I was like, okay, she gets it. So that was great. And I think that when you're a writer looking for representation from an agent, it's often really easy to kind of just want anybody to represent you because you're just desperate to have representation but I feel like it's a lot like dating like you don't want to be with somebody just because like they were willing to like you know go out to dinner with you like you want to be with somebody who really wants to be with you and who cares about your book as much as you do and I feel like my agent really does and she then was an incredible advocate for it because then we got a lot of the same pushback when we started querying editors which is like how are we going to sell this? It's too depressing. You know, like people who have pets aren't going to want to think about their pets being dead. Like that's awful. And, you know, there were some editors too, even that my agent thought would be a great fit. Like there was one editor who she knew, like loved her cat so much that she got like a, basically like a wedding band engraved with her cat's names, but she read it and was like, this is too hard. Like, I can't do this. Like I can't read this. And Eventually, we found an editor who, similar to my agent, got it. And she said, you know, this is part of life. This is something people want to talk about. And I shared over and over how every time I brought up what I was writing about to friends or like random people I met at parties, they were always really excited to then tell me their own pet loss stories. And so many people I interviewed for Good Grief, when they shared these stories with me, would say, you know, I've never talked about this with anyone else before, but I'm really glad I did. And I feel a lot better now. And to me, I wanted to write this book as a way for people to see it's okay to share these feelings and that they're not alone. Lots of people go through these experiences, you know, like the majority, I think it's like 70% of American households have some kind of a pet. So this is a very 
um, shared experience by people of all kinds of ages and races and political, you know, orientations and everything. And yet we don't really talk about it a lot, even though it's something that I think can be a great way to connect with people. Um, so anyway, once, once I finally, you know, found an agent and editor who really got that and understood that, um, that was really great to feel like, okay, I'm not crazy. There are people who understand the value of this book. You could have self-published and you mentioned before that you wanted a hard deadline because you could go through the research forever. Um, so is that the only reason why you went the traditional publishing route? And overall, are you happy with the final product after knowing what you know now? Would you still choose that route? Yeah. So I, I wanted to do the traditional route because, um, like self-publishing, there are a lot of pros. You hold a lot more creative control over, you know, the cover, um, over exactly what's in the book versus what gets cut. You know, like I had a lot of pressure from my publisher to keep it pretty short. You know, my first draft of the book was 115,000 words. So I cut like, I don't know, a third of it. Um, but I, I always, um, I mean, I've worked a bit as an editor and I think maybe my background as a teacher is part of it. I really feel strongly that having a really smart editor makes writing so much better. And so I didn't really trust myself, I guess, if I self-published to do it all myself. Um, you can hire, you know, an outside editor to do that work, but, um, that felt very expensive. So I was like, let me just try to go this traditional route. And if it doesn't work, I could self-publish. And I always tell like my students that if you're at all interested in traditional publishing, you should try that route first because you can't go the other way. If you self-publish, then you can't bring a self-published book to like HarperCollins. They won't want to publish something that's already been out in the world, but you could try to query traditional publishers. And if they're not interested, then you can self-publish. Um, and also with self-publishing, you have this huge burden of doing all your own marketing and outreach and publicity. And I was really lucky to have a great publicist at HarperCollins who, um, you know, she helped me get on NPR. I did an interview on here and now last summer. Um, you know, she helped set up, I did an interview, um, for the Boston Globe, you know, all these different sort of media opportunities that, you know, I was able to set up some myself and I had some people who reached out directly through my website, um, or through Instagram like you did. Um, but I also felt lucky to have somebody who is working really hard to kind of get my book out into the world. And that's one major problem with self-publishing is that that onus is really all on you to do. And it's just, it's hard, hard work. Um, there, it's really hard to sell lots and lots of copies of a self-published book, um, just because it's so much work to, to get, you know, ads out there and get the word out. I loved the format of your book. Can you describe how it's broken down and how you made the decisions to break it down the way you did? Sure. So, um, I said before, like, I think outlining is really crucial when you're approaching a really big project, like a book. And, I really feel like once I figured out the structure, everything kind of started to fall into place for me. And so um, I knew I wanted my own pet ownership stories to kind of drive the narrative arc. Um, And for a while, it was very strictly chronological, um, where I went through every pet I'd had sort of in the order I got them. Um, And 
there were two problems with that. One, I just had too many, too many pets. It was like a lot. Like there were some pets that got cut or kind of summarized with, like I had a whole bunch of different aquatic turtles. Like there were too many to like get into with that. I had a parakeet named Clara who did not make it into the book. Like, and it just was too many animals. And also it was almost confusing because it was like all these different like back and forth. And it's like, well, I had this bird when the dog was still alive, but then this dog outlived the bird. You know, it was just, it was a lot. And I started to think about um, sort of the impact of all these animals' deaths that had had on, on me. And, you know, in in different ways, I found sort of the different species sort of hit me differently for some different reasons. And I you know, the fish deaths were hard because they were like the first ones I experienced. And then Kiki, my bird who I write about in the second chapter, you know, he was my first pet who like lived the longest. Like he lived for, I think it was like five or six years, which was like half five years, which was like half my life when I was 10 years old. So that was an enormous impact for that reason. And then a lot of the turtles and tortoises either like ran away or we set free and had these sort of ambiguous like deaths or ends. Um, and then like the dogs really stuck with me because like my dogs, Gus and Gwen, like collectively they live for like 20 years and they covered like a huge important part of my life, like from middle school all the way through grad school. Like Gwen died in 2013 when I was getting my MFA. So once I started to think about them sort of in groups, I was like, I can still write about it chronologically, but I'm going to kind of group the animals together by species and focus on sort of one element of a pet death um, experience through each animal. So the first chapter is about fish and how those were my earliest pet losses. So I use that as sort of a jumping off point to talk about earliest pet death rituals throughout the world. So that's the chapter where I talk about mummies, uh, pet mummies in ancient Egypt and all these ancient dog cemeteries in Siberia. Um, and then the second chapter is when I write about Kiki and the other birds I had early on and sort of how I felt bonded to them in a way that was different than the fish. So then I use that to talk about sort of human animal connections. Um, then, you know, the third chapter is about hamster sitting for my friend Mary and when her hamster died on my watch, which still remains one of the traumatic moments of my childhood. But that chapter, then I use that to talk about the responsibility that comes with pet ownership and sort of the weight you feel when this other animal's in your care. Um, so the other chapters sort of move like that as well. Like I talk about, um, you know, burial rituals and funerals in one chapter after reflecting on a funeral we had for my beta fish in college. Um, and then with the dogs, you know, I talk about the community that kind of comes together when a pet dies and how you need people actually to really support you a lot um, when you're going through the loss of a pet. So that's how the book is organized. And I feel like once I finally landed on that, it all sort of fell into place. But it took like many years to figure out what that structure was. I mean, it was so well done. For people Thank unfamiliar you. with the term disenfranchised grief, can you explain? Sure. So I um I read a lot of books um, and articles by psychiatrists and social workers um, about grief in general, um, not just pet death grief. And um, the term disenfranchised grief really resonated with me, which is 
um, refer to to cover any type of grief that isn't talked about um, pretty openly in society. So a grief that you feel that maybe um, really hurts, just like any other type of grief, but you feel less comfortable bringing it up. Um, so a more traditional, normalized type of grief would be, say, the death of a parent, right? Because it's something a lot of people, most people experience. Um, people often kind of feel like they know more what to say, you know, when a parent or grandparent dies. But disenfranchised grief can include everything from um, having a miscarriage to getting a divorce. Um, you could feel grief if your house burns down. Um, and you can obviously feel grief when a pet dies. But these can all be things that maybe people feel a little more weird or uncomfortable bringing up, talking about with others because you don't know how people will react. Um, or it's a type of grief that maybe not as many people experience in general. Um, so like the death of a child can be seen as disenfranchised grief because it's a more um, like rare grief that people experience. And um, all those types of grief, you know, it's something that like, you could bring it up and someone could say, oh my gosh, like, I'm so sorry your cat died. I totally get it. Like when my dog died, I, I called out of work for a week. You know, what can I do? Can I bring you some food? You know, like, how can I help you feel better? But then you can also have people go like, it was a cat. Like, can't you just go down to the shelter and get another one? Like, why are you so upset? And so I think that makes people really scared to talk about their feelings surrounding the deaths of their pets in particular, because you just don't know what kind of reaction you're going to get. Like sometimes it's incredibly supportive and wonderful, and sometimes it makes you feel even worse. So I think a lot of people just don't say anything because that's, they don't want to take that risk. Yeah. I felt that the Fiona Apple reference was a really powerful example of that when her dog was dying and she canceled the South American tour. Yeah. And, you know, there were people who definitely got it and there are definitely people online who made fun of her for doing that. And yeah. it's, it's really hard because you don't know what kind of reaction you're going to get. We know that pet lives are short and we eventually feel anguish, deep pain, but why do we still get them? You did such a great job of explaining that in the book. Well, um, a lot of people have told me they think the book is very funny, which I was always happy to hear because I think I have a very dark sense of humor and I wanted that to come through. But part of what's so funny to me about pet ownership is like, are we all masochists? Like, why do we keep doing this to ourselves? You know, like nobody is putting a gun to your head and saying like, get this puppy that you're going to fall in love with and then be devastated in 15 <laughs> years. You know, like no one's forcing you to do that. Though I will revise and say, I did interview some people for my book who are parents who said they felt like their kids forced them to get pets. And then the kids like go off to college and then the parents are alone with these animals and suddenly the animals are their best friends and they kind of fell into having pets they didn't plan on having. Mm -hmm. So I will say there are some cases or like I know people who inherited an animal when another loved one died and then kind of like ended up having this animal they weren't expecting. But the majority of people are like actively choosing over and over to go through this experience that ultimately is going to result in heartbreak. And to me, there's something comical about it, right? Because like, there's so many really hard, sad things in life as people we cannot avoid, but this is something we could avoid, but we choose not to. And um, I think 
that there must be something so worth it. There's something about having pets that enriches our lives and makes us so much happier and joyful and appreciate the moment that, you know, even if the last part is so sad and terrible, everything leading up to it is so wonderful, it kind of cancels it out. And by far, the vast majority of people I interviewed for my book are what I call repeat offenders. They have had more than one pet over the course of their life. Like, I think only like two or three people said it was too hard when my dog died. And I was like, I can never do this again. Very few people actually, a lot of people felt that in the moment, but then eventually changed their mind and got another pet. But very few people actually stuck to that. And I just think it comes down to having pets makes our lives, you know, sillier and happier and more joyful and weird, honestly. Like, <laughs> I don't know, sometimes with like Seymour, like he always he chases rabbits. And I'm like, I never thought I'd have to like be trying to extract like a baby bunny from his mouth. I'm like, what are the weird things we do for our pets? You know, um, so I think that in the end, the good stuff weighs, outweighs the bad stuff, even if it is really hard in the end. There is a quote from your book, closure is a completeness of the perspective, not the experience of the event. You talk about human funerals, rituals, and remembrance, and how there is no standard for our animal companions. You mentioned that earlier in the interview. Can you explain why that can make the experience of death harder for us to handle and find closure? Yeah, so... I think a lot of people often sort of dismiss like whatever human death rituals they're used to that they grew up with, but um, as sort of boring or cliche, but honestly, like there are reasons why those rituals have happened for millennia. And, you know, there's a lot of similar rituals across cultures of like, you know, washing the body or dressing the body or having time to sit with the loved one's body before you bury it, you know, like sitting Shiva or having a wake um, and having a funeral and writing an obituary, like all these things help us come to terms with the fact that this loved one is gone. And with pets, it's hard because there've been all these weird things with certain religions and cultures feeling very strongly that animals don't have souls or it's inappropriate to honor animals and death in the same way that you honor people. And so there can be these sort of weird judgmental pressures that make it harder to figure out what to do. And then also just many people are very private about their grief surrounding their pets. Like I said, because it's a disenfranchised type of grief and they're afraid of how people could react. Um, but then also, I think because often like a lot of people don't know your pet like you know your pet, you know, maybe like your animal dies and like you and your husband, maybe like your kid are devastated, but maybe not a lot of other people knew your animal. And I think that's a bit different maybe with dogs because like you walk dogs out in the neighborhood, you get to know people um, through having your dog out in the world, but especially animals that are mostly in the house, like my tortoises, like people don't really know my tortoises besides me and Richie um, or people with cats. So I think often when people are grieving their animals, they're very private and quiet about it because it's like not a huge group of people. But I do think things are changing, especially actually with social media and like so many people posting on Instagram about their pets all the time or having pet specific Instagram accounts that, you know, when a pet dies, suddenly, like, there are all these people who have been following, you know, your dog for years, and they're upset, too. And so 
I think people are being a lot more open with sharing how they're grieving and sharing the things they're doing. And people are taking inspiration from that. And I think a lot of people often draw inspiration from human grieving rituals that they've experienced themselves because it makes sense to me. Like if that's something that you did that was comforting for you um, when a loved one who's a human died, why wouldn't you apply that to a pet too? So actually a couple I interviewed for the book um, had a Yorkie and the wife is Jewish. And so they actually like sat Shiva for the Yorkie. They invited people to come over. They invited like the mailman who the dog always barked Aww. at and, like the dog walker and like the kids came over and all this stuff. And they did sort of the similar thing that they would have done for a person because to them, they were like, well, our dog was part of the family. So this is what we do for a family member. So we'll do this for the dog. In your book, you talk to religious leaders and share that throughout history and a lot of places, the burial of animals with humans or in human cemeteries is disrespectful. You also share examples of that not being the case. So one of the examples I loved was the ancient Egyptians there was even a conversation you had asking about pet souls. Can you share more about all of that? Yeah. So, um, there are definitely like certain religions, especially a lot of the Christian religions that sort of rank this hierarchy of human souls versus animal souls or do animals even have souls. And, um, I interviewed an Episcopal bishop for the book and he said, you know, and he's, a big dog person himself. And he said, you know, if you've spent any time with animals, it feels pretty obvious that like a dog has a soul. And the way he thinks about it is that maybe humans have more complicated souls and can have sins and be messy and unpure, but animals are sort of like almost already like angels. Like they're so pure in spirit and they just live their lives in the moment. They do what they need to do. Like when a dog bites somebody, they're not doing it to be mean, right? They're doing it because they're afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and with animal souls, you know, I think people apply a lot of their own religious and faith beliefs, um, to what they hope happens to their pets. Um, you know, my dad who was raised Catholic, um, you know, always said like, he liked to imagine that his, his dogs, you know, souls are up there in heaven too. And that, you know, when he dies, they'll all be together again. Um, and I think that, you know, you have to figure out what makes the most sense to you and what makes, brings you comfort, Um, but to me, like, I sort of like that idea too, of my, what my dad thinks where it's like all these beings I've loved, whether they're human or not, like their energy is released and we're all sort of reunited in some way that we don't really understand. And, you know, I think with animals, um, you know, they, they are really pure and they forgive really easily and they, um, you know, can teach us a lot. And I think that applies both in life lessons and also in lessons after they've died as well. In your research, did you find a time period, culture, or location where pets were the best treated and properly mourned? Is that time now? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I feel like it's gone through different waves like throughout history. Um, and it's sort of interesting to see um, like, like you said, the Egyptians, like there were certain cultures who often really honored animals and gave them burials kind of equivalent to people. So there was a lot of that in ancient Egypt. There was a lot of that in Peru with uh, animal mummies. And then also like the Victorian era, like in England, pet 
funerals and pet like grieving rituals were huge but that was also because like death rituals were very like trendy because of queen victoria who wore black all the time because of her husband um but that was also sort of like there was a lot of tension there where like you can't bury a cat in a human cemetery it's disrespectful so that was like people trying to do that and then um things kind of also i find go in waves based on sort of the state the state of the world like when people are going through wars or famines or like really hard um you know uh, violent tragic you know situations they often just don't have time and resources to have pets so then you know it's hard to have pets in general, let alone like if you're just trying to figure out how to feed your family while a war is going on, you're also not going to worry about like, how do I have a funeral for my dog? You know, it's just like, there's too much going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say like in contemporary times, like when, when countries become more financially stable, um, there's a great quote from a piece in, it was the Atlantic, I believe that says that pet ownership, like cocaine use is an indicator of like the economic success of a country. So like pet ownership and recreational drug use both increase dramatically when a country starts to become more like economically successful. And, um, I think as more people have pets, then more people then grieve pets and share their grief around pets. And I think, you know, right now we're in a really special time where people feel really comfortable often sharing their feelings around their pets. I actually think social media can be a wonderful tool for that because you can put your feelings out into the world and like post a bunch of photos of your dog and write a long paragraph about how sad you're feeling. And people who maybe don't have pets or who think you're overreacting or a weirdo can kind of like ignore it. But then someone like me can comment and say, Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, I, I loved your dog too. He was so great. I'm going to miss seeing photos of him. You know, how are you feeling? And people can engage. And my friend, Annie Hartnett, who is a novelist who always writes about animals and all her books too. When her dog Harvey was dying, she was posting all this stuff on Facebook, like giving updates about his surgery and what was working and what was not working. And when he finally did die, she said she got like 40 sympathy cards from people because all these people have been following along what was going on. And she said that, you know, posting about that actually was really cathartic and helped. So I think that right now, in part because of the internet, we can find our people more easily who get it and can support you. Um, So I would say that's helpful. And also a lot of laws are changing too about burials. There are more um, what are often called whole family cemeteries where you can be buried um, people and pets together, which I think is really wonderful. Though I will say people have been getting buried with their pets forever, often just illegally um, or secretly. Death and and grief are scary and uncomfortable topics for a lot of people. Were there points where it felt daunting to tackle? What did you want to offer through this book? It definitely felt daunting. And at times, um, there are parts I just didn't want to write. Like that last chapter where I talk about the deaths of my dogs, like I put that one off for a long time. I spent a lot of time revising earlier chapters instead of working on that chapter because I knew it was going to make me really upset. Um, And when writing about things that are hard and sad, and I talk about this a lot with writing students of mine who are working on, you know, memoirs, maybe about a traumatic part of their life or about a complicated relationship. I always, you know, recommend really pacing yourself. Um, 
you know, and reading your own mood. Like if you already wake up and you're feeling kind of down and off one day, like maybe you don't try to write about the saddest, most difficult part of your book, you know, that day. Um, like maybe take that time to like reorganize your research files and like look for good quotes, you know, and not put yourself in that place. Um, and just, you know, giving yourself space to kind of write what you can and then walk away from things. And I often found like I would try to write something and it would be hard and I'd work on it for a bit. And then I would take Seymour for a really long walk and that would make me feel better. Um, and so I think making sure you balance writing about challenging, sad, hard stuff with things that make you happy, things that bring you joy and make you feel calm and centered, you know, like walking your dog or doing yoga or going swimming or, um, you know, going out to dinner with your spouse, like whatever it is that makes you feel good. Um, making sure you have a lot of that going on when you're working on something that's particularly painful or hard. Thank you. That's great advice. You write that it was surprising how common it was to hear that most people had at least one tragic or traumatic pet death experience. People can carry tremendous guilt. You were so kind in reminding us that even with the best intentions, mistakes or accidents happen, that we are clumsy animals ourselves. Was it important for you to offer comfort and peace to the readers who have had those experiences? Definitely. Because I think what makes pet loss um, hard in a very unique way is that when you bring an animal into your life, you know, as a puppy from a breeder, or from a shelter, or whatever, you're kind of making a pact with them. And you're saying, I'm going to care for you the best I can every day until you die. And pets don't grow up and go off to college. You know, they are with you from birth until death. And you have this responsibility to care for them and give them the best life that you can. And so even though animals getting sick and dying is inevitable, and even the best possible care in the whole world cannot make a pet live forever, I think people still feel a lot of guilt then when that finally does come because you feel like, oh, I must have done something wrong. Like I should have noticed sooner that he wasn't eating his food with the same gusto or like that my cat was limping or like I should have paid attention or I shouldn't have moved the birdcage to that side of the room because there's a draft over there. You know, like people really, really are always beating themselves up for things with pets because you, I think, have this burden of responsibility of taking care of them. Um, and so to me, it was really important to write this book, one, so people felt like they weren't alone and how sad, you know, they felt about their pet death um, experiences, but also so people saw, you know, that they're not alone in those feelings of guilt too. And often maybe it's just something we're doing to try to cope with our sadness over our pet dying. And I interviewed, um, she's a UU minister and she runs a pet loss healing circle. And she said she finds the group sort of therapy conversations to be the most helpful because people are sharing their stories. And, you know, like, the guy across from you in the circle is saying like, oh, I should have seen it sooner. Like I should have realized my cat was sick. Like I'm so mad at myself. I didn't do enough. And he's beating himself up. But you're listening to the story and you're like, I actually think he did a lot for his cat. Like I think he did everything right. And when you're thinking that, then it can help you realize, well, wait a minute, maybe I did everything right too. And I tried my best and it just was 
part of having a pet is that they got old and got sick. So having people share stories, whether it's about, you know, rituals and celebrations that they planned or about those kind of guilt and beating themselves up sort of feelings um, can actually really help you process your own emotions yourself. I had such a hard time with Chloe, my French bulldog girl. She was diagnosed last year with an autoimmune disease and I felt so devastated. Like, was there something that I could have done differently? How could I not know this? But I mean, we took her to multiple vets and she was normal. And then finally I had the idea of taking her to a specialist and then that's when she was diagnosed, but after an MRI and a a spinal tap. So there, it was very invasive. So I think that when I was talking to her neurologist and I remember just crying, thinking that there was something that I could have done, like, how could I prevent this? Like what it just, I just had no understanding. And thankfully she was so patient and so warm and told me there is nothing that I could have done differently. At the same time, your book was another resource to comfort me during that moment because it was still hard to come to terms with that. So I think reading other people's stories and realizing that I wasn't alone and having that support was just so helpful. I think too, it was really important to me to include the perspective of veterinarians because I think that often when people are grieving, you're looking for someone to blame and it's really easy to lash out at a vet and, and blame them for, you know, you said this surgery would fix my dog. And, you know, the vet is actually saying, you know, I I never said that this would make your dog live forever, you know? Um, But with vets, they had a lot of really wise advice too. And in particular, something that made me feel a lot better when I was writing this book was learning about, you know, animals evolve to hide illness because in the wild, if you show weakness or like that you're sick, you become prey. And so animals intentionally hide if they're hurting or sick or don't feel good. And so, you know, people often beat themselves up for not noticing sooner that an animal had a problem. And honestly, they're hiding it because that's what they have evolved to do. And often when a person does notice, it's only because it's at the point where it's like so far gone and so bad that it's like almost fatal. So, you know, it's something that's like you shouldn't feel bad if you didn't notice it soon because like cats in particular are like really cunning about hiding that they're sick. My friend Karen Fine, who's a vet, she calls it um, uh, he was fine last Tuesday cat where she would see cats who were like on death's doorstep and people would say, you know, but he was fine just last week, like last Tuesday. And it's because cats can hide things, hide things, hide things. And then basically like right up until they die. So it's really hard. Um, But that made me feel a bit better that it's like, it's not just, Um, it's not your fault if you didn't notice right away. Yeah. And speaking of veterinarians, you were so thoughtful in the book to capture pet life and loss from many different perspectives. And you discuss things like compassion fatigue and the alarming veterinarian mortality rates. Can you expand on that? Yeah. I, so like I said, I, I wanted to give the vets like a, a chapter that kind of gave their voice because Vets love our pets too. They care about them. Um, Often, you know, they are with our animals from 
when they're puppies all the way until they're elderly and they have to euthanize them. And I really wanted to give some space to honor the really hard work that they do. One vet said, you know, no other medical career, you're expected to be a pediatrician and a gerontologist all in one. But that really hit home for me because it's such a difficult thing to both have to deal with these beginning of life and end of life issues. And I was really startled to learn about the really high um, suicide rate with veterinarians. And, you know, there's a really big burnout and, you know, they get often take the brunt of a lot of people's misdirected anger and sadness and feelings. And it's also just very hard work in that it's expensive to go to vet school. It's as expensive as medical school, but then the salaries afterwards are not nearly as high as being a human, um, you know, physician. And all those things, I just really weigh on people. And actually, especially since COVID too, like vet practices are often completely, you know, stretched too thin. They don't have enough staff. There are too many people who have dogs now um, who are looking for care. So, you know, I wanted to put that chapter in because I felt like it was important to remind pet owners that, you know, vets, be kind to your vets. Like they just want to help your pets and do the best that they can. And, um, you know, they're people actually who can really uh, get it and be wonderful resources to talk to because they often have animals themselves and have gone through it and they understand how awful and sad it is when a pet dies. So, you know, love your vets and, you know, show them care and compassion as well. Yeah, I'm so beyond grateful. We have such a great team around Chloe and there's no way that I would have been able to get through this year without them not only caring for her, but also me as well and my husband. Your grandfather shared a story with you that you talked about in the book. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So my grandfather, the one who owns the insurance agency, he's 89. And um, I think of men of a certain generation, they were taught to not share their emotions, especially not around things like pet dying. But my... um, my grandfather had this Yorkie named Samantha and my aunt actually was the one who really pushed to get the dog when she was in middle school. But then same old story. My aunt grew up, went off to high school, college, moved out. And then my grandparents had this little Yorkie still named Sam. And my grandfather started taking her with him to the insurance agency actually every day. And she would sit in the window and bark at everyone on Highland Ave. And um, they were like, best friends. They were pals and they went to work together every day and they came home every day and she lived until she was 17. And, um, what happened was she had a stroke actually. And my grandfather found her and she was very close to death. It was obvious like she was not going to recover from it. And her breathing was already very shallow. And my grandfather, I think also in part, because he grew up, um, in sort of a more rural time period. Like he grew up in Somerville, which is a city, but more people had chickens. His neighbors had horses, his dad uh, bred canaries. And, you know, I think he was just more in touch with animal death. And like he saw his mom, um, you know, kill and pluck feathers from a chicken to then have for dinner. So he was more used to these things. So when my grandfather found Samantha, he actually, um, he just, gave her a really hard hug um, and and kind of gently suffocated um, her to kind of end her life. And 
he then, um, in very sort of stoic, 89-year-old, you know, man fashion, well, he wasn't 89 at the time, but he went through then and gathered up all her toys and beds and threw them out and then, like, didn't speak about her death again. Like, and he didn't even actually tell people that that's what he had done. Um, he just said that she died in his arms. And um, when he first told me that story, I remember being sort of horrified by it because I was like, you didn't rush her to the vet and try to, you know, do everything you could to, to make her better. And he said, you know, she was already 17. She had lived a really long life and she always was very nervous at the vet and very scared. And he said, you know, the thing that was probably most comfortable for her was always being held in my grandfather's arms. And it's like, if that's the place where you can go, like where you're most comfortable, like that, that really is a kindness. And I, I shared this story with one of the vets I interviewed and she said, you know, your grandfather really did the, the kindest possible thing, which, you know, when I was a teenager and I first heard the story, I was like, oh my God, my grandfather murdered his own dog. And the vet was like, that's not what he did at all. He was giving her a gift. Like he was giving her an easy, kind, painless death. And she was, you know, in his arms. And um, one of my favorite books is The Unbearable Lightness of Being. And um, Milan Kundera says in that book, there's a quote that says, um, animals are lucky because death can come in disguise um, as a loved one. And, you know, he's writing then about how one of the main characters actually, you know, gives a euthanasia shot to the family dog and the dog gets to, you know, go being surrounded by people that he loves. And I, I think about that a lot that, you know, often with how we think about treating humans and human medicine, it's like you do everything frantically that you can until the last possible minute. But with animals, it's, you know, you can sometimes give them a really gentle, soft, kind send off into whatever's next. And, um, you know, honestly, I'm really proud of my grandfather for doing that because I think it's a really hard thing to have to decide to do. And I think it's amazing that he knew what was best for Samantha and helped her through that. Yeah, I'm sure it was really hard for him to share and for you to contemplate sharing it in the book to make sure that it wasn't misrepresented in any way. Yeah, I um nonfiction writers and memoir writers often have conflicting feelings about like, do you tell people what you're writing about ahead of time? Do you let them veto things? Mm -hmm. Do you let them read things ahead of time? And this part in particular, I, I printed it out and I gave it to my grandfather and I said, I, you know, I want to include this story, but only if you are comfortable with me, including it. Um, and it's interesting cause you know, he's 89 now, Samantha died in 1988. So it was like 35 years ago that this happened and he still gets choked up talking about her. But ultimately he said, you know, if you think this story will make people feel better and help people, I, I think it's okay for you to include it. So I was honored that he, he allowed me to write about it. Thanks so much for sharing that. One topic that I was pleasantly surprised to see acknowledged, and you touched on this a little bit before, but was the relationship between socioeconomic condition and pet ownership. Can you share more about that? Yeah. So um, when I was looking for people to interview for my book, I tried really hard to um, let people self-select. I didn't want to approach people and say like, hey, I hear you had a really traumatic experience with a pet dying. Can I ask you about it? So I would do more sort of passive things where I would post on Facebook or uh, Twitter and say like, hey, like, 
you know, has anyone ever gotten a memorial tattoo for a pet? If you have, I'd love to talk to you about it. And so I'd let people reach out to me because I felt like, you know, when talking about something as sad and upsetting as pet death, um, I didn't want anyone to feel pressured into talking about it. Um, but then when I was going through sort of my first draft of the book, I started to notice a pattern that the vast majority of people who wanted to talk to me about their pets were white, um, had grown up in sort of upper middle class, often suburban homes, um, and, you know, had pretty stable socioeconomic, you know, situations growing up that allowed them to have pets, you know, like, families without as much disposable income, like I, you know, I said before, like, you're not, if you're worrying about making sure your family has enough to eat, you know, you're probably like, I can't also get a cat, you know, on top of that. And, um, so I, as I was sort of actually, when I was told that my book was getting pushed by a year, um, because of COVID and I had more time to work on it, I was like, okay, I really need to seek out some different perspectives of people who've had pets because all kinds of people love pets. And just because you are not like, you know, from a super wealthy family in a Boston suburb doesn't mean you did not grow up with pets or have relationships with animals. And I read, there's an incredible book called my dog always eats first, which is about um, homeless people and unhoused people who have pets who often like their animals are sometimes some of the most like best treated pets, because if they get any food, they often give it to their dog before they even eat themselves. Um, so I, I wanted to reach out to people who then I felt had different backgrounds, different experiences with animals. And so then I started to do a little more sort of targeted um, interviews in terms of looking for people who, who came from a variety of backgrounds. And I was so, um, you know, honor that people share these stories with me. And I feel like I got some really um, interesting and different perspectives on pet ownership as well. So a friend of mine from high school, Marielle, um, she's from the DR originally. And, you know, she shared that she was terrified of dogs um, for a long time because growing up in the DR and then she lived in um, Boston, they're often these big like pit bulls with spike collars who are scary and they're trained to be really aggressive and, you know, or they're stray like street dogs that, you know, would go after you if you had food. And so she was always horrified of dogs. But then her cousin actually started to get these like little fluffy like chihuahua mixes. And one of them in particular just seemed to take a shine to her. And she she credits this dog as being like her breakthrough dog that like helped her see, okay, dogs don't have to be scary. And he was always really gentle with her and kind. And so I was really glad that Marielle let me share that story in the book because, you know, not everyone grows up with an experience with pets. Like I just like loved animals unabashedly my whole life. But like I grew up like in this like white middle-class family in the Boston suburbs where there were just like dogs everywhere all the time. So, um, you know, getting to include stories like that, or like I interviewed this, this great dog walker named Paul Van Echo, who talks about his experience as a mixed race person who's adopted and sort of feeling off and out of place growing up. But animals were very comforting for him because even if he felt out of place in his family, animals always sort of accepted him for who he was. So, um, I think it was really interesting to get to talk to people. And then also end of life decisions often are greatly impacted by your socioeconomic status. So, um, you know, a friend I interviewed mentioned that like her aunt really wanted to do this surgery to try to extend her dog's life, but she could not afford it. And 
euthanasia was cheaper than surgery and that's what had to happen. So I wanted to really try to touch on that as much as I could to show that, you know, often people's choices are severely limited by the means that they have access to. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that I, I was able to do that justice a bit in the book, though it's a huge, huge topic and something that, you know, could be a whole separate book on its own. Yeah. Well, I was glad to see that it was discussed because I think it is important. In your book, you share stories about animals mourning other animals or humans. Can you share one of those stories and how it touched you? Sure. I um. So this goes sort of to the, you know, anim animals with souls idea and also, you know, when scientists and naturalists study animals, they often try really hard not to anthropomorphize and put human feelings and emotions on animals. But I think if you spent any time with animals, you know that they have feelings and yeah, they probably have different words for them. But like, I have seen my dog be sad. Like I have seen my dog act what I would call depressed. And, um, what was so interesting to me was hearing stories about when pets were grieving other pets or um, when pets grieve a person who's passed away. And, um, you know, there's one story I think about all the time, which is pretty famous, which is Hachiko was a dog who lived in Tokyo and belonged to this professor. Um, and every day the professor would walk to the train station and the, his dog would follow him to the train and he would get on his train and he would go off to work at the university and the dog would walk home by himself. And the dog knew um, what train in the afternoon the professor would always come back on. Like he knew the timing of it and he would walk to the train station and wait and then would walk home with the professor. And one day the professor had a, um, I think it was like a brain aneurysm and died while he was at work. So he never came home. And the dog went to the train station every day and waited to see if he would come back. And then the dog became, Hachiko became this sort of like neighborhood symbol. People started feeding him, giving him water and looking out for him. And when the dog ultimately died um, himself, um, they actually erected a statue in his honor at this train station. And now it's a very popular like meeting spot in Tokyo where it's like mm -hmm. people are like, oh, I'll see you over by like the Hachiko statue. Um, and that story, I think, just really stuck with me because like animals, you know, routine is a big part of their lives and they notice when things are different. And if, you know, they don't get to see like animals don't necessarily have funerals in the same way people do. But I think having an animal get to see the body of a human or other pet that they have spent time with, they understand death in their own way. And so that story of Hachigo, actually, the couple who I interviewed who had the Yorkie that they sat Shiva for, the husband, Larry, passed away over the course of me writing the book. And his wife told me that um, their current dog, he like said in his will, he wanted to make sure that their dog viewed his body. Um, so the dog would know that he hadn't abandoned him because he was so worried that the, he, the dog would think that he had just left him and never to come back. So um, Larry's son actually brought their Yorkie to the funeral home so he could see, um, you know, Larry's body and know like, okay, this, this person is gone. So <laughs> Um, I know. I'm sorry. I'm like, it's, I'm choking up. <laughs> I know. And it's just, it's animals, you know, they, I think, understand things in different ways than people, but they understand a lot of things. And um, if you haven't read it, um, An Immense World by Ed Young is an absolutely unbelievable book. And he, 
he writes about the ways that animals perceive the world, which is radically different often from how humans do in terms of senses and um, emotions. But, you know, animals understand a lot more, I think, than we give them credit for. And so giving animals space to mourn, I think, is important as well. My neighbor, actually, she has she had two dogs and one of them um, passed away this spring and her other dog has clearly been super bummed out. Like she's she's sticking closer to our neighbor and she's she always, you know, would play a lot with Seymour, but she seems less excited about playing right now. And it's just it's a hard time. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, yeah, so I think that when a pet dies and you have another pet, you know, be mindful of giving them maybe a little extra love and care. And also um, some really great advice I heard too is sort of trying to keep up rituals that you had. Um, So an example a vet told me was she had a client who had two cats and one was very sick and uh, old and had to get this medicine like every, I don't know, six hours. So she had to set an alarm in the middle of the night and wake up to give the cat medicine at like 2 a.m. And then she'd go back to bed. And the younger cat also got used to waking up at 2 a.m. And she would give them both like treats and then they would all go back to bed. And so the vet recommended, she said, you know, once the older cat died, she said, even though you don't have to get up at 2 a.m. anymore, she said for a little bit, I think it would be comforting for you and the younger cat if you kept that alarm and you still got up together and you gave him a treat and then you went back to bed because it just like helps with the transition. Um, And similarly, even if you don't have another pet who is alive, you know, um, I had a friend who said when his dog died, like all, and he works from home, all of a sudden he was like, I haven't been out of the house in like four days. And it's like, you need to make sure you still go for walks. And it's like, if you're used to like, okay, I get up at six because that's when the dog needs to go pee in the backyard, like still get up at six and go stand in the backyard and drink your coffee maybe and spend a moment thinking about your dog. Like trying to keep those routines, I think can really help with the morning process. How has your own perspective on pet loss changed or shifted from writing the book? Um, I think a lot of my perspective has um, not changed that much in that it's like solidified more like things I suspected were true. I really learned were true in terms of, you know, a lot of people feel alone in their feelings. A lot of people are afraid to talk about their feelings. Like I, I often thought, oh, maybe I'm the only one who's worried about sharing this stuff and learning that, you know, lots of people feel that way. Um, and I think the main thing that maybe has shifted for me is I feel really strongly that there's no right or wrong way to mourn your pets. As long as you are not hurting yourself or hurting anyone else, do whatever you need to do to grieve. Even if other people tell you it's weird or wrong. Um, I went into the interview I did with the gentleman who had his dog cloned a little bit skeptical. I, I was trying really hard to keep an open mind with every interview I did for this book, but I had to, I went into it and I was like, oh my God, it's so expensive to clone your pet. Like, why would you do that? Couldn't you just adopt another dog? Like, what is, what is wrong with somebody who wants to do this? And I did that interview and I was completely changed after where I was like, you know, I don't know if I personally would ever shell out $50,000 to have my dog cloned, but I understand where he was coming from and why this brought him comfort and why this was the right thing for him to do for him. And, you know, I think, I really feel there's no right or wrong way to grieve. And I am constantly delighted that even after this book has been out now for almost a year, I am learning about new pet 
grieving rituals and things that people do. And I think it's so wonderful that people continue to invent new things and find different ways to mourn their pets. Erica Berry dedicates her book, Wolfish, to all who have been trapped by someone else's fear. You write in your book that your mom held off on saying yes to pets because she was fearful of how you would handle what happens after, the eventual death of the pet. Your book is about what happens after. Do you guys have a good laugh about that now? And when looking back, do you think she was right in her concerns on holding off saying yes to all the pets? Oh, we laugh about that all the time now because like my mom now is like the biggest dog person ever. Like after my dog Gwen died, you know, my parents were like, oh, we're we're done with having dogs. We're going to travel now. We're going to go to Florida for six months or whatever. And then like all of a sudden, four or five years later, my mom was like, oh, I was just looking on Pet Finder the other night. And I was like, you even know what Pet Finder is? And you were on Pet Finder? <laughs> And then for my dad's 70th birthday, they adopted um, their dog, Honey, who they have now, who's another little Karen Terrier mix. She was rescued from like a puppy mill breeder. And um, it's so funny because like my mom saw me go through the heartache. She herself went through the heartache. Like she was so upset when our dogs died, even though she tried to pretend like it wasn't that big of a deal. And um, clearly she also is on board and thinks it's worth it now, even if it's really sad. And so, you know, she jokes that she put it off, but ultimately gave me really good material to write about. So I over one. <laughs> That's so funny. I'm so grateful that you wrote this book. It really does make such a difference. I was so afraid to read the book <laughs> and I was so pleasantly surprised so how can we support you and your work? Oh, thank you for asking that. Well, um, if you want to know more about the book, you can visit my website, which is ebbartels.com. And I also have um, an Instagram account that is uh, dedicated to the book. Uh, it's Good Grief Pets Book on Instagram, all one word. And that is where um, actually every Tuesday I post a Pet Tribute Tuesday um, where people have been sending me photos and obituaries about their animals that I repost. And I also have a live Pet Thursday where I post um, pets who are, are currently still with us posing with Good Grief. Um, so that's a fun place to kind of, if you want to be involved with the Good Grief community. Um, obviously, if you um, buy the book, that is amazing. Thank you. You can get it wherever books are sold. So, um, you know, your favorite local independent bookstore, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, all those places. And then if you like the book, you know, always writing and leaving a review on, you know, Amazon or Goodreads, all those places, um, it does make a big difference. And then just telling people about the book, I, I've also been so touched um, to hear stories like yours, you know, where you've given the book to somebody and then they buy copies to give to other people. And I feel like it's a book that, um, you know, it, it makes a good gift to give to somebody maybe who's going through a hard time. And um, I've gotten some really wonderful notes from people who've emailed me or messaged me through my website saying, you know, um, my cat just died and a friend gave me your book and it really meant a lot. And now I'm going to give it to somebody else I know whose, whose pet is sick. So, um, you know, I guess just through word of mouth, recommending my book to people makes a big deal. And also checking it out from your local library, or if your library doesn't have it, requesting that they order it, that really helps a lot too. So thank you for doing any and all of those things. What's next for you? Are you writing another book or what are you doing that, what can we look forward to? 
I am still trying to figure that out. I have a feeling whatever my next book is, it is going to be about human animal relationships um, as well in some capacity, because I'm just so fascinated sort of by that, that question of like, why do we keep bringing animals into our lives, even if it can be hard and sad. So I'm, I'm thinking about things for that. Um, and then also actually thinking about maybe other ways good grief could reach um, a bigger audience, either maybe through a podcast or a young adult version, or, you know, my dream is to have that Netflix documentary series about good grief. So I'm kind of like putting it out into the world and hoping I'll manifest it. So we'll see. I love that. Well, congratulations again. Thank you so much for putting this out into the world, your energy and sharing stories of so many perspectives. It's so appreciated. Oh, well, thank you so much for reading Good Grief and having me on the show. I really appreciate it, Tina. Thanks for joining me on today's episode. If you want to continue the conversation, be sure to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the show notes. Here's a quick reminder to subscribe to this podcast. You can be the first to know when new episodes drop. All you need to do is open your favorite listening app, search for Mother of Dogs, and hit the little plus sign or follow button in the upper right corner. I'll see you back here every other Sunday for a new episode. 